A couple of quick things that I want to say before I even step into the message today. One, there's, there's sort of some temptations that can arise when we have one service as a church, when we just go to one at nine o'clock. I think there's two temptations, really. One of them is to feel like this is sort of a phoned-in moment for us as a church, that we've, so we've sort of made the day shorter, it's easier, and that's certainly true for us as staff and volunteers. And for you, you're going to be home by 10.30 today, 11 o'clock. Life's going to be pretty sweet. But, but what that doesn't mean is that God has met us any less in this place. So for many of you, you've come in here with pain and difficulty and struggle with questions and doubts. And what I want to tell you is that whether we meet at nine and 11 or just nine o'clock, God is willing to meet us in this space. And I believe that he's going to do that. The second thing is this, and this is really for the moms in the room, because I know you're the ones who feel this pressure today. This is a family service on purpose. Which means what we believe at New Life is that there's nothing more formative for a kid or for a student than to watch their parents worship, to watch their parents open the scriptures. We also realize that there's nothing more stressful than for you to try to go to church with your child. With that said, what I want all of you to hear, my expectation for your kids today, hear this, is them to just be themselves. I do not expect them to be better behaved than they normally are. I do not expect them to be quieter than they normally are. If they run up on stage, I'm just going to pick them up and hold them until you come get them. It's not going to phase me. It's going to be fine. So moms, dads, anxiety, let's drop it a couple notches. You don't have to worry about what people to the left or right of you think if they judge you. We don't know them anyways. I'm not allowed to say that, but here we are. Good, deep breaths. Before we step into the scriptures, let's take a moment to center ourselves with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God, we are thankful that we get to gather as one large family in this room today. That as parents, we get to stand shoulder to shoulder with our kids and show them what it looks like to worship. As kids, we get to stand next to our parents and ask the weird questions of why are they raising their hands while they're singing? We get to take communion together. We get to open the scriptures together. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would somehow, in the midst of everything that we do in this space, give us clarity of thought, give us the ability to focus on you, and give us the ability to come to a new awareness about who you are as the God of the universe, who is not distant and far away, but is in fact with us in this very moment. So Holy Spirit, would you come and make that clear to us? We ask all this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all God's people said, amen. Jake, let's go ahead and start with that first picture. What I want to do this morning is give us a look at one of the most famous paintings of all time. Anyone know what this is? The Last Supper. Anyone know who painted it? Leonardo da Vinci painted it. It was commissioned. He was commissioned to paint it by the Duke of Milan who said, I wanted this picture of the Last Supper. This is what we know to be pretty typical of the picture. It was actually, this is more likely the second version of it. The first version of it was kind of lost. In the first version, Jesus' face was kind of unfinished because someone saw the picture and thought that James, the brother of Jesus' face, was so perfect, there's no way that they could do it any better. So da Vinci just stopped and said, well, I guess I'm done. It was then repainted again later by da Vinci a few years later. It took him about three years to do this thing, which is incredible. I can barely focus on anything for like 30 minutes, but he took three years and did this painting. It's a massive piece of art. 
It's about 18 by 25 feet. So if you were to stand in front of it, it would take up most of our living rooms. It's this masterpiece. And what we see in this picture is obviously Jesus sitting in the middle of the table, surrounded by his closest friends, his disciples, his inner circle. These are the people who walked with him, who talked with him, who spent most of their lives following him around, which might seem odd to us that they would physically sort of walk with him and be present with him. But, you know, in the Jewish world, when you were a young boy, you, the goal was that you would go to school, you would study the Torah, you would study the law and the prophets, all so that one day, just maybe you could become a rabbi. And that as a rabbi, you would then have students who sat underneath you and you would teach them as well. But most of these guys in this painting, with the exception of Jesus, um, were not great at school. They were not good at these things. And so most of them, they dropped out and they became things like fishermen and farmers and tax collectors in some cases. They worked for the Roman Empire. They did whatever they had to do to make ends meet, but they certainly did not follow the track of becoming a rabbi. And then one day, this rabbi from Nazareth named Jesus shows up to their place of work, to their home, and he looks at him and says, would you follow me? And they had nothing better going on, so they looked at him and they said, sure, why not? We'll follow you. And by agreeing to follow Jesus, what they did was say, we will become your students. So everything you teach, everything you say, everything you do, what you eat, what you drink, we will, we will watch closely, we will observe, and we will implement, we will mimic those things in our lives. They became apprentices to this rabbi named Jesus. And this, in this picture, for these 12 disciples and this man named Jesus that we know so much about, this was a good moment. They're sharing a meal together. Prior to this moment, Jesus has washed his disciples' feet, shown that sacrifice is sort of the undergirding principle of the way that he lives and And this is a good moment for them. We know what's coming later in the story, but at this point, this is just a precious moment, them eating dinner with the man who has taught them everything about how to live and how to think. And it's a good moment primarily because Jesus is right there with them. He's right there in their midst. They're shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, the Savior of the world. And these 12 men, they lived pretty interesting lives for a stretch while they followed Jesus. It was exciting in most cases, but in many cases, it was also terrifying. It was, it was overwhelming because they, they came to this realization that things were often great when Jesus was right there with them, but things often became really difficult when Jesus was not right by their side. In fact, one might say that sort of the question that haunted them as they sort of moved and lived as disciples of Jesus was what do we do when Jesus is not right by our side? What is it that we do when Jesus isn't right beside you? And if we're honest in this space today, isn't that sort of the question that that haunts many of us? What do we do when Jesus isn't right beside us and we sit in the hospital room and hear the diagnosis? What do we do when Jesus isn't right beside us, and yet we find that our marriage is not everything that we'd hoped it would be, that relationships and friendships are sort of fracturing. What do you do when Jesus isn't right beside you? If you're a kid in the room, what do you do when you go to school and you feel the pressure to get straight A's and make every team that you try out for and be a perfect student and one day get into college, but you're 10 and you're already thinking about college, which is stressful in and of itself? 
How do you move through that? How do you make decisions? What do you do when Jesus is not right besides you? Or just even in the most general way, what do you do with the kind of faith that believes in a God and a Savior that you can no longer see, but you're supposed to give all of your life to? What do you do when Jesus isn't right beside you? This is the question that plagued the disciples. And I would argue it's the question that sort of plagues us as followers of Jesus as well. We've been in a series for the last, I can't believe I'm going to say this, 24 weeks where we've been really just asking the question of who is God. We took eight weeks to talk about who God is as a father. We took eight weeks to talk about who God is as the son. And we've taken the last seven weeks up to this week, week eight, to talk about who God is as the spirit. And what I want to propose to you today is that we actually learn maybe the most important thing about who the spirit is, not even by looking at the spirit in the scriptures, but looking at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 4. We're going to be at the end of Mark chapter 4. If you've never opened a Bible to Mark chapter 4, it's towards the back. It's the back third or so. Mark was one of the four guys who wrote a gospel account of Jesus' life, gospel meaning good news. He kept record of what the good news of Jesus was. And What we find is that Mark keeps an intricate account of different moments. One of them starts in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. It says this, That day when evening came, he, he being Jesus, said to his disciples, Let us go over to the other side. They're probably on one side of the Sea of Galilee getting ready to cross over. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Get the picture that's being painted here. Jesus and his disciples are on a boat. They're crossing this lake and a massive storm just comes up out of nowhere. A squall is not the same as a hurricane. A squall, think more, something like a tsunami happens or all of a sudden the waves are moving, wind is is pushing, rain is coming. In some cases, even snow just comes out of nowhere because the temperature drops drastically. They're crossing this lake, which is not a big lake. And the storm all of a sudden comes up And it's more than just a small storm because their boat is starting to drown. And Jesus is taking a nap, as any good savior of the world should do. He's sleeping down underneath the boat. This is what it says happened. It says Jesus was in in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, I love this teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? So Jesus is asleep. The boat is drowning, which Jesus is underneath. So if the boat is drowning, one has to imagine that Jesus is aware that there is water down there. And the disciples come to find him and they look at him and they go, do you just want us to die? Which I would say is code for Jesus. Do you even care about us? Do you even care about our, our lives and our well-being? We're, we're about to, this is the Titanic before the Titanic. Like, do you care at all? And maybe you've even found yourself in moments asking that question trying to figure out your career, 
You're going, God, I, I, I'm trying to live out my calling. I'm trying to worship and honor you with the way that I work. And I feel like I don't have any clarity on where I'm going or what decision I should make. And you find yourself going, Jesus, God, do you even, do you even care? You find yourself wrestling with your kids, trying to make sure that they live well and they live right and they get good grades and they go on to be vibrant, thriving adults. And you're not sure if it's working or if it's not. You have that moment where you go, God, do you even care about my kids? But what you notice in this story, what happens, the disciples are away from Jesus and everything goes awry. It isn't until Jesus is back standing shoulder to shoulder with them that things seem to get back on track. In other words, what do you do when Jesus is not right beside you? I can think of another story in the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. Just a few chapters later, you can just turn with me to the right. Jesus and a few of his closest disciples have gone up to a mountain. And while they were up there, the, what took place was the transfiguration of Jesus, this miraculous moment where they see prophets of old. And Jesus is up there with a few of his disciples, and the rest of his disciples are down on the ground dealing with a problem. It says this, starting in verse 14. When Jesus and his friends, when they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. So Jesus has come down, his disciples are in a fight. They were overwhelmed, oh, excuse me. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. Hear this. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. They could not. So another moment. Jesus has gone away for just a few short moments. His disciples are left to sort of fend for themselves, which Jesus told them at one point, you will do things greater than I could ever do. They're down on the ground. A man comes to them with his son who is possessed by a spirit. A spirit has taken over his body. He's unable to talk. He's sick. He's in real need of help. And so this father, this caring, loving father brings his son to these disciples. And the disciples are like, what are you going to do? Again, that question arises. What do you do when Jesus is not right beside you? I would propose to you that this question is what plagues the disciples over and over again. It plagues us as well. And the disciples one night are sitting in a room with Jesus. And what the disciples believe about whoever the Savior of the world is is what that Savior will do is come in full power, full glory. They will not die on a cross. They will actually become the newest empire of the day and take over. They will become a military superpower and run everyone else out of town. For the Jews, what that meant was they would run anyone else out of town who has ever pushed, oppressed, or humiliated them. And yet Jesus has this moment in the Gospel of John, which is where we'll spend the rest of our time, where he looks at them and he says these words. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. To which I imagine the disciples going, stop it right there, big fella. Every time you leave, things go south. So now what you're telling us is that you're actually like leaving for good. Again, what the savior of the world is supposed to do is set up shop among the people and rule and reign and humiliate anyone who has ever humiliated the Jewish people. And Jesus says, I'm actually getting to leave. I imagine that fills those disciples with quite a bit of anxiety. How are we going to function? Are we just going to go back to our regular jobs? Are we just going to become regular people all over again? And Jesus says, no, I actually, there's something better. He says this just a few verses later. He says, all this I have spoken while I was still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't go and show us how the Holy Spirit is this separate thing. He says the Spirit is actually a part of the triune God. The Spirit is an extension of the Father and the Son. The Spirit is a gift, as we've talked about. It's a gift that you may never see in front of you, but you will always see the working of it unfolding around you. But what Jesus says ultimately is that the Spirit functions as if Jesus was still there. The final truth that I want to share with you in this series is the truth about the Spirit is that the way in which the Spirit guides you is as if Jesus was right beside you. The Spirit guides you as if Jesus was right beside you beside you. The Holy Spirit is not just this thing who shows up when we pray hard enough and does incredible miracles. He's not just the thing that shows up when someone starts speaking in the tongues of another language. The Spirit is the long-standing guide for those of us who have put our faith and our trust in Jesus. And the way in which he guides us is as if Jesus has never left us. Now, why does this matter? Because when I talk to most people, Christians or not, One of the big places that they wrestle with God is over the process of making decisions. How do I know what is the right thing to do? Some of you have found this to be true. In like career or vocation, you're trying to figure out what to do. And the question you're asking is, what does God want me to do? Maybe just in matters of faith, you have these questions. Well, where is it? What is the right stance on this idea? What is the right theological position? Spirit, how do you help me make the right choice? Or maybe it's in those moments of conflict and crisis. Maybe it's even in those moments of failure where you've messed up completely and you're trying to figure out how you can get your life back on track and you're asking the spirit, well, what is the thing to do? And what those questions are all really is a plea to the spirit. Would you show me the way? Would you guide me in a direction? So with the last few minutes here, I just wanna simply share with you the way in which we recognize guidance from the spirit in our lives. The first thing I want you to know is simply this. Guidance from the spirit is always rooted in what is true. Guidance from the spirit is always rooted in what is true. Back to the gospel of John. We're gonna hang out between John 14 and 16 for the rest of our time together. John is documenting this moment where Jesus is really giving an extended teaching to his disciples. And in John chapter 16, I can't remember what scripture I'm going to, Jake. Can you throw it up on the screen for me? Ah, ah, no, 
There it is. John chapter 16, verse 12. I knew it was 16. Jesus, he's speaking to his disciples, giving a diatribe about what it is to follow him as he gets ready to depart. And he says this, he says, I have much more to say to you, but more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, read Holy Spirit comes, he will guide you into all truth. Jesus then says he will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet to come. For Jesus, one of the most valuable things that the spirit brings into our lives as a guide is that he is always pointing us to what is true. And in a world that is full of the potential to believe every lie that is said about us, in a world where it is easy to to wonder what is true and what is not true, what Jesus promises is when the Spirit guides us, he can only point us to the things that are in fact true from the Father himself. Which means that one of the primary ways that the Spirit begins to move in our lives is not just by telling us the truth, but in order to tell us the truth, he often has to dismantle things that we've believed about ourselves that are in fact not true at all. Often I find when I talk to people and they're trying to discern calling and career, where do I go, what's the next job I should take? I often wonder if what the Spirit is really trying to do is not give us a new direction in our career, but help us realize that we are in fact not what we do. Our identity is not found in the career that we have. It's not found in the amount of money in a paycheck that we make from our job. It is not found in what we do. Or often where the guidance of the spirit becomes important is in relationships. Anytime I serve at young adults up in New Life, I often hear the dialogue of like, well, I'm dating someone, but I just don't know if they're the one. And I'm like, man, you're 18. This is gonna be a long road. But I hear people who are even dating or who are married, they're asking constant questions. Spirit, would you reveal things to me? Help me figure out how, how to be a good spouse. What it is. And what I'm finding to be true is that what the Spirit is often doing is he guides us in those moments. Is the truth that he's trying to reveal to us is that our identity is not determined by who we love or who loves us. Our identity is not marked by if we can get someone to love us well. Our identity is not marked Our identity is not marked by the kind of relationship we find ourselves in. In fact, the only relationship that matters is the one that we have with the triune God himself. I think just in daily choices, this is true. I can't tell you the amount of pastoral conversation I have with people where I can tell there's just a low hum of anxiety around a decision. What do I do? How do I do it? When should I do it? And as you dig more in the conversations, you recognize that the Spirit has actually given an answer. What the Spirit now has to dismantle is that many of us don't trust Him in our everyday lives. Not just that, but that many of us are convinced we have the power to screw the entire world up if we make one wrong decision. New Life East, can I tell you one blessed truth? You cannot screw this thing up. You cannot mess this world up. You are not that powerful. You don't have that much control. Your decision over what kind of car you buy is not gonna affect the economy at large. Your decision over where you work, do you work from home, do you work in an office, it's not gonna ruin the world. And it's probably not gonna ruin your life either. I think sometimes what the Spirit wants us to hear as the ultimate guide for our lives is that we're not in that much control anyways, and that's okay. 
The Spirit will always guide you into truth. The other thing that, that I think we need to recognize about guidance from the Spirit is that guidance from the Spirit ultimately draws you closer to Jesus. Every time it draws you closer to Jesus. Let's go ahead and go to the next scripture in John. It ultimately draws you closer to Jesus. Jesus says these words. He says, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach, everyone say teach, teach you all the things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. He says, I'm gonna, the Spirit is going to come and it's going to teach you everything that you need to know. When he says teach, he doesn't mean that it's gonna be the thing that's like, hey, look over there, just out of nowhere on a Monday morning. It's not gonna be the voice that says randomly you should just try something. The, the voice of the Spirit will always point you to Jesus and what he's gonna do is he's gonna teach you over the course of your life what that is. Teach is quite literally used in this to mean someone who is instructing, who is giving you an example of, it is always teaching you how to make choices and decisions, how to follow the guidance of the Spirit so that you become more like Jesus, which feels so simple, right? But it never is. Because if we were in the midst of a big decision and we heard the Spirit say to us, why don't you just draw closer to Jesus? We might get a little irritated I have a dear friend of mine who was just in a season of life sort of navigating where he was working, definitely felt tumultuous in the space that he was in, didn't feel settled in where he was at. And so to search for an answer to the question, should I keep working here? Should I stay in this career? Should I go work somewhere else? He went and sought out a spiritual director. And as he was sitting with the spiritual director, I remember he called me, maybe it was the second or third time. And he goes, well, I was just at spiritual direction. And I go, was that good? He goes, not great. And I go, what do you mean not great? He goes, I think she only helped me come to one conclusion. And I was like, what is that? He goes, I feel like as I'm trying to make this decision to discern where to go, to figure out what is the right choice, what is the wrong choice, should we leave, should we stay? The only thing I kept hearing the Spirit say to me was, why don't you sit and wait with Jesus? Which if I was in his shoes... I would have thrown a fit. Jesus, I'm trying to get answers here, like real answers. Do I stay or do I go? Do I, do I leave my career and start a new one? Do I move to a different place? And the only thing you can say to me is, just sit with Jesus. But this is how the guidance of the Spirit works. He always draws us closer to Jesus. Here's the truth. When you start to ask the Spirit questions like, where should I go? You know where he points? To Jesus. When you say, what should I do for a living? He goes, I'll tell you. And he points to Jesus. When you say, when you say I'm trying to figure out how to be more loving, more kind, more gentle. Spirit, would you help me? You know where he points? To Jesus. This is the way the Spirit guides us. The last thing I want to tell you about the Spirit before we step back into worship is this. The guidance from the Spirit always, always leads to peace. It always leads to peace. We can throw that scripture back up there from a second ago, Jake. John, in this letter, he makes sure to quote Jesus' words here where Jesus says to his disciples, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. For Jesus, you know you have been walking in step with the Spirit and letting him guide you when you stumble into peace. But I have to clarify something for you. Most of us, when we think about peace, 
think that peace is the absence of conflict, absence of conflict, right? Peace is what happens when there's no more war. Peace is what happens when there's no more inflation. Peace is what happens when Republicans and Democrats lay down their swords and cuddle with one another. But that is not the biblical idea of peace. The biblical idea of peace is rooted in the word shalom. Peace for the writers of the scriptures is not what happens when your kids stop throwing things. Peace is not what happens when your husband quits making noise in the garage by banging tools around. He's never fixed anything anyways, I know from experience. Peace is not what happens when everything goes away. Peace for the writers of the scriptures, peace for Jesus, was this recognition of goodness and calmness and rightness in the midst of chaos. So peace doesn't mean that everything becomes easy. Peace doesn't mean that everything feels great. Peace is what comes from a recognition of following the Spirit and realizing that in the midst of the chaos, there can still be goodness and rightness in the midst of all of it. New Life East, can I invite you to stand? We have walked through for 24 weeks asking the question of who is God? And I just simply wanna remind you of three things this morning. Who God is, is a loving, caring, nurturing father. Unlike the broken fathers that we've seen in this world, but much like the good fathers that we've seen in this world. He is caring, he is concerned about you. He is interested in your well-being. Who God is, is the son who would come to lay his life down for you so that sin and brokenness, death, would no longer have the final word in the story of humanity, but that you are now invited into a brand new story. This is what the gospel claims for you, that our God is a spirit who will walk shoulder to shoulder with us until we no longer need to. He will walk hand in hand with us into eternity, guiding us with every step that we make. He is the giver of every good gift. He is the presence who brings peace and justice into the world. This is who our God is. So New Life East, would you open your hands and if you find yourself in a space going, I've never heard that God is like that. Whether you are young or old, my invitation to you today is to simply trust that God is that good that he is not the God that you have seen presented on the news. He is not the God that your crazy neighbor has told you about. He is in fact a good loving father, a sacrificial son and a guiding spirit who is never going to leave you. Jesus, as we stand in this place and worship you, we are thankful that you are that good. Man, we are thankful that you are that good. We are disheartened by every line of publicity about our God that has not been true. But today at New Life East, we speak the truth about who God is. So as we continue to worship, Spirit, would you speak to us and remind us and continue to walk with us as we follow you? It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There is
standing glory we sing when I stand in glory I will see his face there I'll serve my king forever in that holy Thank you, Lord. So thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. One more time, thank you. Yes, thank you, oh my Father, for giving us your Son and leaving your Spirit till the work on earth is done. We're going to take communion here in just a moment. So if you want to grab those elements, you can. There's nothing that proves just how good our God is, unlike coming to the table, which is the recognition that God has not just been good to me and that God has not just been good to you, but that he has been good to the people that we stand next to. That he has poured out his goodness on people who are different than us, people who 
look different, who think different than us. And what happens is we come to the table with a Savior who will lay his life down so that everyone may see just in fact how good God is. And so the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. New Life East, would you take that bread and would you break it? He says, every time you eat, would you do this in remembrance of me? Would you do this in remembrance of a God who is not far away and distant, but a God who recognizes the pain and the suffering of his people and comes and draws close? A new life east, would you take and would you eat? And there's nothing that shows how good our God is And the fact that what he was willing to do to prove that he was good and powerful was not to rise to the top of a kingdom, but was to lay his life down on a wooden cross. And so that same night that he was betrayed, he took a cup and he said, this cup is the new covenants, the new promise that I will never leave you nor forsake you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Every time you drink, would you do so in remembrance of me? New Life East, would you take and would you drink? And would you continue to respond in worship by singing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen and amen. What a sweet morning together, our two congregations together. I hope you have a wonderful Fourth of July weekend, I guess I should say on behalf of the Queen and the British Empire. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) bring it back, Andy. Let's put our hands up. And, And we just say, thank you, Lord, this morning. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your son and leaving your spirit. For leaving your spirit until the work on earth is done. A new life I I pray of you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. The Lord lift up his wonderful countenance toward you and give you peace in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen Amen. and amen. God bless you. You are loved. See you next week.